Hey, FNS fam. This is Michael Simone, your executive producer. And in this week's Fertility and Sterility on air, we have a special Eshray edition brought to you by Dr. Eve Feinberg, Dr. Kurt Barnhart, and Dr. Ann Steiner. They come through all those Eshray abstracts, resisting the temptation to explore Milan, and brought you some very interesting interviews with a handful of presenters from the conference. This is a two-parter, so make sure you look out for part two as well. And I can't emphasize enough that I hope you make it to the end because we have a special interview at the end of part two for you. Dr. Eve Feinberg sat down with Dr. Birol Aden to discuss how he secured and relocated thousands of embryos after the start of the conflict with Russia. It's just riveting and even gave me goosebumps just hearing what he had to endure. I will warn you that his particular mic had some technical issues mid-interview, but we actually decided to keep it in because it's still audible from that point on if you can get to a quiet area, and it's just that good. And with that, here we go. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hello, Eve. It's a lot of fun to be here at ESRA this year. What do you think of the meeting so far? I could not agree more. I think it's fantastic to be here. It's very similar in many ways to ASRM, but very different. I think that the scientific sessions are fantastic. They're really well attended. Lots of people, lots of great science. It is similar to what we see, the topics that are emerging and the topics that we're going to talk about on the podcast, I think are many of the same themes that we've talked about um, over the last year. And it's exciting to see so much live and really exciting to be back in person. Yeah, there really is a nice pulse going on to meeting. And somehow I just learned science better with all these wonderful accents of people presenting. I know. I think sometimes it's a little challenging depending on the country that they're from. But I think it's just amazing to have so many people together. And I think what you realize that ASRM is fantastic and international, but it is largely American. Whereas ESHRA, I I feel like the Americans are few and far between. I'd love to see more cross-pollination between us. And the research is good and high quality. So I hope we all recognize the international aspect of some of the research that's done and we don't become solely United States focused. I could not agree more. Um, I'm really excited for all of the interviews that we're going to be conducting. We have gone through the abstract book of every oral presentation and poster presentation and have invited, uh, I think, many that we felt were incredibly compelling and interesting to our listeners. So you're going to hear a series of interviews. Some will be scheduled and some are literally off the cuff. So please enjoy. Hello, um, my name is Tatiana Gibbons and I'm a doctor from Oxford in the UK. Um, So a little bit about myself, I graduated at Imperial College London, I then worked as a clinical doctor and then now I'm part-time clinical and part-time doing my DPhil with Oxford University. We are trying to develop a new non-invasive imaging test to diagnose endometriosis, that's what I do for most of my time. Um, But I have had a hand in a few Cochrane Reviews uh, updates and the title of this update that I'm doing is Timed Intercourse for Couples Trying to Conceive. Which is fascinating. So tell me a little bit about what you set out to learn and what your hypothesis was when you put together this review and what you found. So essentially, I use apps for everything. I track absolutely everything. I mean, I don't have my app watch on right now, but usually I track everything. And I've always just been really curious about are we tracking everything that's important and is there evidence that what we're tracking is going to have some benefit and I think with these apps that you know there's 200 million women worldwide are using some sort of fertility app or you know menstrual cycle app and I see that these fertile window predictions and I even a clinician myself I almost subconsciously or consciously would start using these predictions to try and you know time intercourse if when I do finally get to that stage um, and I just wanted to know if there's any benefit of using these methods and are there, is there any risks of it? Um, and essentially the studies that we included, so we had six RCTs, um, four of these RCTs were included in the previous review and two of these are new. And essentially they looked at urine ovulation tests as well as fertility awareness based methods, so that's 
you know, monitoring your cycle, monitoring cervical mucus, um, and monitoring body temperature changes. And essentially with the urine fertility monitors, we found that there was moderate quality evidence that increases the chance of pregnancy, mostly in participants if they'd been trying to conceive for less than 12 months. Over 12 months, the, there's just not data there, unfortunately. Um, but fertility awareness-based methods, which is, you know, what most of, 55% of apps will use just the calendar tracking alone. 27% of apps use a combination. But fertility awareness-based methods, there's just not, you know, there's not evidence there yet. So were you, and, and I have to say I'm not entirely surprised by that. I wrote an opinion piece a long time ago. I don't even remember what it was called. But I wrote an opinion piece basically saying the same thing that these retrospective fertility apps probably weren't going to be beneficial because they're a lag measure. The event has already happened, you're tracking it after it's already happened, but an ovulation predictor kit is what we can think of as a lead measure. It actually gives you a chance to intervene. Yeah, definitely. And I think that, you know, it seems to be if you can have a kind of a combination of things, in my mind that would give the highest chance of pregnancy, but we haven't, we haven't got data for that either. So how much of a difference was it? And so when you're looking at a patient who says to you, and I'm a clinician also, unfortunately, I always see the patients once they already have the diagnosis of infertility and once they already come to my office, I don't often see the patients before they try to conceive. But should we be telling patients right off the bat that they should be using some sort of a predictor app? So I don't think so at all. Um, so the small difference that we did notice, so we were looking at urine ovulation tests, if you weren't using these, it was 18% chance of pregnancy per couple. And if you were, then the chance of pregnancy was 20 to 28%. So it's not a huge difference. And actually we don't have enough data, I think, to be saying to people, yes, you should be doing these. And there's also, we don't have data on whether it's safe or not in terms of adverse events. So falling pregnant and trying to fall pregnant is such a stressful event anyway and we don't want to put more stress on yourself. Right, I worry about failure and male factor as a risk of putting too much pressure on the timing of trying to conceive. So exactly, so there were some observational studies that we couldn't include obviously because of the fact that they're observational, but they were really interesting because they were looking at how the were men finding, and actually there was two or three that found that as the events of timed intercourse was going up, so was stress around the, the fertile period, so was erectile dysfunction, even even extramarital affairs. And obviously, you know, that's not data that we can use in our review and it's not it's not something that we can confidently say that that's what's gonna happen. But it does put a little bit of worry into me that, you know, we don't actually know what else is out there and we could be, we don't wanna promote something that could, you know, have inadvertent stress. Right, I think we don't wanna morph from a normal healthy couple attempting conception to then having male factor infertility as a result of erectile dysfunction. And that has huge effects on their you know, long-term effects. You don't want to affect a couple purely on the tiny increase of pregnancy chances that you might get by using the method. What I'd love to see is some sort of a Kaplan-Meier survival curve looking at time to pregnancy and not so much the per cycle likelihood of success, but how much does it really shorten that time to pregnancy and then how much of an increase do you see in resultant complications as a result of that? That's exactly what we need and it needs to be independently funded. There are lots of the studies out there which were sponsored by commercial sponsors and I, I just feel like we need to have a large study looking at all of these outcomes, time to conception that leads to live birth, we need to have long-term outcomes, adverse events because some of these adverse events was over six months so assessing outcomes for two or three cycles, that's not going to detect it if it's stress related. It, I think it seems to be something that builds up over time. Yeah, so I think that the review that you put together was really interesting and compelling. So what advice would you give to a couple who is just starting to try to conceive? So, I, so I've thought about myself and you know, if it was my friend or if it was my family, and if they said, do you recommend ovulation detection methods, you know, urine dip tests, I would honestly say it was something that they would have to sit down and have a chat with their partner and see whether do they feel that having this control over their cycle is important, having more knowledge about when they're going to fall pregnant, or is that important to them, or do they feel like it's going to increase their stress levels, put pressure on the relationship, and then have a check-in with each other. If they do use these methods, try it for a few cycles, see whether 
this actually is working for them and have more of an individual approach rather than just saying, okay, well, there is data, we need to do it. Let's just, you know, go ahead with it. Right. And I would actually argue that maybe you could take a split the difference approach where if you look at some of the older papers on time to pregnancy and how long does it actually take to conceive, maybe try for four or five months completely unmonitored. And then if you're not pregnant, then you can start to monitor and be more accurate about timing. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that it seems to be, you know, even having intercourse two to three times a week is still sufficient enough. So try that. And then if you feel like, okay, we need to step something up, we need to try another method, then maybe this will work for them. Yeah, and I think um, the point needs to be made, and I think it probably goes without saying for this audience, but you can really only tell couples to try two to three times a week heterosexual intercourse, normal, regular menstrual cycles that are predictable. For anything other than that, I think you have to resort to more complex methods. Yeah, 100%. So a lot of the data we were using was all on cycles that were normal length, normal frequency, so it can't be extrapolated to people who you know, don't fit that bubble, unfortunately. Fascinating. Well, I look forward to seeing this Cochrane Review published. I think it's really exciting and interesting. And I just wanted to thank you for coming by and speaking with us about it. Thank this. you so much for inviting me. It's honestly an honor to be here. All right, I'm next joined. I'm going to have each of you introduce yourself and say who you are and where you're from. Great. Um, my name is Michael Fanton. I'm a data scientist at A-Life Health. I'm from Oh, I live in Chicago and happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Hey, Paxton from New York, CEO and founder of A-Life. Thrilled to be here. Really excited to share a little more about what we've been working on. Yeah, thanks so much. So I think AI is probably the hottest area in reproductive medicine. And I, I think the application of AI has been in everything from decision making in IVF to embryo selection. And I saw that your abstract was on FSH dosing. So, and that's actually an area of my own research, trying to come up with a predictor to figure out how many eggs will be retrieved and how much FSH is used. So I was really interested in hearing what you're presenting on at ASHRA. Sure, so we had a nice talk here about our starting dose tool, that's what we call it. Uh, a patient similarity matching algorithm to help uh, determine how a patient would respond to different starting doses of gonadotropins. It's based on a K-nearest neighbors algorithm so for a patient of interest, we have an algorithm which goes and selects 100 of the most similar patients in our, data, uh, our database, which right now has um, over 20,000 cycles. How many clinics or where, where Right now it has four from? different clinics in the United States. We're working on expanding that, of course. But yeah, we have a, a really great diversity of different ages, ethnicities, um, clinical characteristics so and whatnot. Data, so clinic level data combined into like a master database. Exactly. Okay. And we've actually found that that's super important. Um, some of our clinics that are, one of our clinics, for example, uses one specific starting dose for the majority of their patients. And so in order to get a really accurate curve of how a patient might respond to different doses, it's really important to have kind of the insight you get from having multiple clinics in a data set. Of course, as we expand it, um, we hope the curves become, or they will become more accurate. So tell me a little bit about the curve, because I, I saw in the abstract too, you talk about this FSH dosing curve. What exactly is that? How it works is we select the 100 most similar patients in our data set uh, using four clinical characteristics, so the patient's age, their AMH, their antral follicle count, and their BMI. And then with those 100 similar patients, we uh, plot the mature eggs that were retrieved against the starting dose of FSH to create a curve which describes how that patient would respond to different doses. And so what exactly did you find that you're presenting here? So the abstract here was estimating how this could benefit the patient if it were to be implemented in a clinic. So we went through all the patients in our database and we created our curves for each of the patients and classified them into kind of two different types of responders, either dose responsive patients or uh, flat responsive patients. So dose responsive patients are patients where we predict there's a really, uh, there's an optimal region on that curve to maximize the number of eggs. So would that be like a normal responder where a poor responder might be like a dose not So that's patient? a really great question. Um, it actually, dose responsive patients can be any types of level of, of predicted responders, from high responders to predicted low responders. Dose responsive just means that our al algorithm suggests that there's a really specific dose range 
where you could maximize the number of eggs. Whereas the flat responsive patients just have a flat dose response curve. Kind of whatever you would give them, we would expect about the same number of, of uh, mature eggs to be so retrieved. what type of patients fall into that flat response? They, they tend to be slightly lower responders on average, but uh, kind of, again, there, there's a wide range of, of patients that... Um, yeah, because I think that's where, that's where a lot of people argue for minimal stimulation, that if you're like a flat responder patient that you don't necessarily need to give somebody 450 IUs of FSH, like you can get the same response if you give them... 150 units or 75 units. Yeah, and so we actually found that almost approximately two-thirds of the patients in our data set were flat responsive patients. And we then compared outcomes between patients who were given a high dose versus patients who were given a low dose um, and used propensity score matching to try to account for confounding factors, but found that the outcomes between high dose and low dose patients were basically identical as we would have predicted by our model. But the low dose patients had significantly less FSH given, like over, um, it was around 1,500 IUs less of total FSH on average. So that could be saving the patient thousands of dollars. And so you're saying two-thirds of all patients fell into that flat response, and one-third fell into that Exactly. And, and um, so for the one-third of patients, we did a similar uh, exercise where we compared patients who were given an optimal dose versus patients given a non-optimal dose and found that the optimal dose patients did have better outcomes by about 1.5 mature eggs and about uh, 0.6 blastocysts. And pretty how cool. much variation did you see? I mean, I, I would love to have some sort of a algorithmic sliding scale that shows age BMI, like a calculator, age BMI, et cetera, and then to understand how I might dose the patient versus the machine might dose the patient versus my partner in the next clinical office might dose the patient. How much variation did you see? In terms of uh, the dosing strategies? Um, yeah, among there, the doctors at the Ford Clinic. There's a large variation, um, really large. And I think we're learning here at ESHRA, too, that there's a really large variation in what other countries are doing, too. Yes. <laughs> um, I, we've had some really surprised responses uh, about what we consider a low dose in the U.S. versus what some doctors here would consider a low dose. Right, yeah. So as I've been floating around to the different abstract sessions, a lot of the people talk about average dose for a normal responder being 150 IUs seems to be the European norm, and max dose in Europe seems to be about 300, 350 IUs. And in our clinic, we rarely go above 450 total, but I do see clinics using 600, 900 units of cannabitropins a day. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So where do you think the research will go from here? So we're working on kind of a, a number of different tools to try to attack IVF from all, all the different decision points during the ovarian stimulation process and, and other things beyond ovarian stimulation. But we have a, a tool we've developed to try to optimize the day of trigger by predicting the number of mature eggs that you would retrieve if you were to trigger today versus tomorrow. We're working on tools to uh, uh, optimize the amount of LH given. Our starting dose tool is just the follicle stimulating hormone right now, as well as looking into how we can optimize those as well. Yeah, so thank you so much for sharing your work. This has been really fantastic, and I look forward to seeing what comes out of this. Great, thank you. So we are back with another interview. I'm going to have you go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Dorit Kieslinger. I'm uh, from Austria originally, but I live in the Netherlands since a couple of years. Excellent. <laughs> and I have uh, Dr. Ann Steiner with me here as well. Hello, from FNS Reviews. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the work that you're presenting today. I think time-lapse imaging is the hottest question around, is does it improve outcomes? And what happens when we compare embryos that are cultured in a time-lapse-like system but aren't actually using time-lapse microscopy? So why don't you tell us a little bit about what your hypothesis was and what you studied? Well, we were very curious if time-lapse monitoring can improve pregnancy rates because it has been a hot topic for years. It has been used for years, but actually, there, well, when we started the study, there has not been a lot of information about it from randomized control trials. So there has been a study by Rubio from 2014, which showed improved outcome, but they were not able to distinguish if it was the time-lapse-based embryo selection procedures or the uninterrupted culture who improved, which improved results. So that's what we were curious about. 
and uh, yeah, we had the opportunity to test uh, the Jerry Plus incubator in our study. So tell me a little bit about how you how you went about your study design and how you decided how many patients to include. Uh, well, first of all, we, it was clear that we wanted to compare three arms because that has never been done. That you can really compare both mechanisms in one study, and uh, that was the first idea. And then, yeah, we were looking for which time lapse systems we are going to choose. And we had some contexts at that time with oxygen, uh, which produced the EFA system. And uh, we have tested the EFA test system before in a pilot study. And at that time, we didn't find an improved outcome in the pilot study. But there was another trial by Adamson, which did find an improved outcome. Both were pilot studies. So we thought we need to do a randomized control trial. Yeah, which is amazing. So what were the three arms that you used? So the first arm was uh, the EFA arm, where we used actually EFA time-lapse-based embryo selection and uninterrupted culture conditions. The second, yeah. And did you use the EVA algorithm to help you decide which embryo to transfer? Yes, exactly. So we used the EVA algorithm in combination with morphology on day three to select an embryo for transfer. Okay, and then second arm? Uh, that were the uninterrupted culture conditions. So embryos were also cultured in the Jerry incubator, but we didn't use the time-lapse parameters for embryo selection. So we only scored the embryos at regular time intervals at the screen. We didn't take them out of the incubator. And then your third arm? That was the control arm. Embryos also cultured in the same incubator, but we did not use uh, the time-lapse monitoring, obviously. It was really taking the embryos out of the incubator and checking them. So the yeah, culture conditions were interrupted, where embryos were disturbed. And we always thought that disturbing the embryos would yeah, be a problem. <laughs> yeah, and so what was the primary outcome that you were looking for in the study? Well, we were looking at a cumulative ongoing pregnancy rate, so that's really, yeah, also not an outcome that has been done with time-lapse monitoring before, which was interesting as well. And yeah, we looked for a one-year ongoing pregnancy rate and live birth rate as well. And so all the patients who were in the trial for the entire year for that study were kept within the same incubator system? Correct, yes. And what did you find? Well, surprisingly for many people, I guess, we found that neither time-lapse-based embryo selection nor the uninterrupted culture conditions do improve outcome. So that was uh, yeah, a bit of a shock, I guess, for a lot of people. <laughs> I think it is a shock, and I think one criticism maybe with the day three transfer as opposed to day five, um, that some people would argue that some of the best selection benefit of the time-lapse system is helping to pick which blastocyst to transfer. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think that we wanted to do the day three trial, the day three embryo selection, also because uh, yeah, the EVA system is made for day three selection. The whole idea of EVA is that you take advantage of knowing which embryo will form a blastocyst on day three already. So you don't have to culture until day five, which can be a big advantage if you consider that day five transfers have been related to risks like preterm birth. Right, that's an excellent point. That the idea of getting that embryo back into the body a little bit sooner and not keeping it in extended culture may actually be beneficial. And so if you can find a system or find a way to predict that, um, we may be able to move back, I would say in the U.S., back to day three transfer. But I think that everything is evolving quite rapidly in that arena. And I think it's becoming more and more clear that we're, that we're the goal is not just to achieve a pregnancy, but really to achieve a healthy live birth. Exactly, yeah. You don't want the uh, children yeah, to come too early, have problems with their health and everything. Yeah. So that's why I think that it's important to study that as well. And also, really look at the cumulative ongoing pregnancy rate. I think that's a very important point, because people just look at like, achieving a pregnancy like after the first fresh embryo transfer. Which is, of course, great if you have a higher pregnancy rate. That was our idea as well, that we want to improve the ongoing pregnancy rate after fresh embryo transfer. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately yeah. it didn't, it didn't no, work. No, but, but I think it's interesting. And I think one of the things that I, I think is really important is the publication of negative studies. I think we're so quick to have papers that are accepted for publication that show positive findings. And I think it is really important to show those negative findings and really think about not everything is going to have benefit. Yeah, I think that uh, in the Netherlands we're a bit famous already because we have done a lot of studies well, having negative outcomes, if you will. <laughs> we, uh, we did a metabolomic study uh, a couple of years ago who also showed no, no improved results. Uh, there was a big PGD study 
from Lastenbroek. And uh, yeah, now this time-lapse study also shows that time-lapse monitoring doesn't improve outcome and also the uninterrupted culture conditions. So yeah, that's uh, two flies in one, <laughs> if you yeah, can use that. Yeah, no, phrase. and I think it's amazing. I just really want to congratulate you on a study that needed to be done, that was really well done, I think very carefully thought out, and I think provides really useful information that we'll use clinically as well. Yeah. So, I'm happy that I had such a great team with me. Um, Niels Lambalk is uh, yeah, the, our, uh, my supervisor in the study and Karlijn van Gaal. And there are lots of people who have been involved and uh, thinking about how we are going to do the study, how can we do the best study. Yeah, it yeah. seems like it was very carefully thought out, very well executed, and I think the results are going to be impactful. Yeah, and also I think what's a big advantage of our study is that we did a multi-center trial with five independent laboratories. So that also shows that even if you use different uh, laboratories in the same machine, uh, the outcome was the same. So it's very uh, yeah, clear. General, right, and generalizable to other exactly. studies yeah. as well. We had different cultural media and different laboratory procedures, but of course everyone used the same study protocol. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing this with us. Well, it was very exciting to be here. Thanks a lot. So I am back with Dr. Ann Steiner. Hello. And we have Professor... Ben or Ben Willem Moll from Monash University, Melbourne. And we are thrilled to have you join us on the podcast today. As you know, we're scouring the best and the brightest and the most um, provocative abstracts at ESHRA and wanted to chat with you a little bit about what you're presenting. So can you tell us a little bit about the abstract? Yes, so this is a Chinese-Australian-New Zealand collaboration where we had data of about 10,000 single blastocyst transfer. So these were only morphologically uh, graded by the Gardner system. But when we had done that and analyzed the data, we still found that the CC category has a live birth rate of 14%. And that is actually the main message of our abstract that we should reconsider whether we disregard those embryos. So going back, you retrospectively looked at the patients who underwent transfers of those CC embryos. And I guess my question is how many clinics are freezing CC embryos and how many clinics are not freezing CC embryos? I couldn't tell you exactly, but I just had a chat with a colleague from Sweden when I was getting my coffee for this podcast and he turned out to be an embryologist and he told me that everything below BB they didn't use. So I think what happens if a couple have only a few embryos then everything will be used. But if you produce a lot of embryos then people are going to say well what are we going to do with the extra embryos here. And then another important assumption for our work is that we think that the cumulative life birth rate is the most important outcome in reproductive medicine. So the, so the lifelong pain of infertility, we consider that to be more damaging, so to say, than the, than the pain of a miscarriage or the pain of infertility during a little longer. And from that perspective, to maximize the cumulative life birth rate, we think that you should use all embryos. Yeah, so I have a couple comments on that, as does Dr. Steiner. So I. I Theoretically, I love that, but I think practically speaking, some of the restrictions that we have in the U.S. may make that really challenging. So one, I think two examples I can draw upon, and I'm curious to hear your take on it. One is that some of our insurance companies put a limit on the total number of retrievals and transfers that a couple may undergo, and where I live in Illinois, that number is four. So somebody can either undergo for retrievals or for transfers before they exhaust their insurance coverage. And so I would argue that I may not want to use something that has a 14% pregnancy rate when I can go forward with a fresh retrieval cycle and have a much higher pregnancy rate. With yeah, I would say talk to your insurance company at home because it doesn't really make sense, no, right? This is, this is about running the marathon and then you're at kilometer 38 and you have a blister, and then you say, well, um, I don't feel completely optimal. Let's do it all over again tomorrow, right? Because you want to avoid that transfer that actually would kind of reduce or compromise your transfer rate. But the truth is, 
that the insurance company should move to a cumulative live birth rate as a measure of success. So my question to you, Dr. Moll, is, is our goal to maximize efficacy in the sense of, yeah, the effectiveness and the time to pregnancy, or is our goal to assure that someone has all of the children that they possibly can have? Well, it's, it's not necessarily about all of the children that they could have, Dr. Steiner, but it's about maximizing the, the cumulative live birth rate. So even throwing away that 14% chance that we found means that some couples will not reach 65%, but 60%. So one other important aspect that we should keep in mind here is that IVF and, and its variants is not a treatment that reaches to 100%, right? So we send away, depending obviously on prognostic profile and age, but even if your prognosis is very good, we send away 40% of the couples with the lifelong pain of infertility. And we challenge people to make that maybe 35 or 30%. So a little question going back to the study. As you mentioned, they probably um, were freezing poor quality embryos when people had fewer embryos and um, were probably discarding the poor quality embryos correct when they had multiple embryos. Were you able to look at the success rate um, with the transfer of poor quality embryos in couples that have had multiple embryos, so suggesting there may be just a more favorable group on the whole. Is it possibly that the transfer, the success rate with transfer of a CC embryo is even higher if you look at somebody in a more a higher prognosis patient? Yeah. yeah, I would say so, and these are all good questions, obviously, but our study was only retrospective. Yeah. And, and given the fact that we had information on 10,000 cycles, yeah, you should also appreciate that the additional information is quite limited. So, so I enjoyed actually uh, presenting yesterday on the, on the stage and backed up by the session of the chair, Dean Moorbeck, who is the embryologist in our team, together with Jan Hei Liu, and who, uh, who backed me up with some specific questions. But our abstract should be more seen as a challenge to the academic and clinical community than, than as a solution in itself. I would argue scientifically two things. I think that while the focus in a lot of the literature and the science is on selecting the best embryo, I think we should also focus on finding where the chances for an embryo are zero or close to zero. And the second thing is I would, I would challenge people in RCTs but maybe also in prospective cohort studies to start transferring these poorer quality embryos also and see what's happening. But did you have any CC transferred embryos in kind of these good prognosis patients? Were you able to do that type of a comparison? We still have to look at age, so, so we haven't analyzed yeah. that. That's yeah. one thing to do and we have that data. We don't have data on the previous number of cycles and the quality of the embryos there. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so I think fascinating work and I think, as always, you challenge us to think a little bit differently, and I think this is really proactive. Thanks for your interest in our work. All right. We are thrilled to welcome Mariana Barreto. I'm going to have her introduce herself and let us know where she's from. So it's a nice pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitement. I am an embryologist coordinator, and I work in a private clinic in Brazil. Fantastic. And your research, as I understand, is on embryomorphokinetics and determining whether or not ploidy status can be decided based on morphokinetics, correct? Yes, exactly. We try to develop a totally non-invasive method with an AI model using 17 morphokinetic parameters. And we try to develop a model that could distinguish ploidy, so distinguish embryos that are euploid from aneuploid. Yeah, so this is something that we've talked about a lot on previous podcast episodes, as there, I think there's this race for everybody to figure out, can we actually determine whether or not an embryo is aneuploid or euploid based on morphokinetic parameters? So tell me a little bit about what you found and what your thoughts are on this matter. So I think today we are trying to find a non-invasive method. So everybody wants to know 
uh, to use non-invasive methods to reach the best language, to choose the best language transfer. So AI is a possibility. And in this study, we found that uh, this model for AI with the morphogenetic parameters could reach a 0.70 of accuracy to distinguish if an angle is uh, an alkaloid or euploid. So it was a good prediction, 0.70%. And how did you do your study? Was it retrospective? Was it prospective? It's a prospective cohort study. So we used a 402 angles. And this total of the angles were divided into groups, euploid and aneuploid. And with this total of the angles, we trained the AI in training, validating, and blind tests. And with the blind tests, we could achieve this accuracy of 0.70. Did you have any particular hypothesis on some of the parameters that might be predictive of aneuploiding? Yeah, we actually uh, did a study in the past that recognized that GPN um, uh, time to pernucleus fading and time to glycillation could be times that are uh, related to uh, be more euploid. When the embryo is faster for this time, they are more euploid. Were you only studying embryos that made it to blastocysts? Yeah, only blastocysts. So you're not sure if the embryos that did not go to blastocysts were euploid or aneuploid? No, we only use the angles that reach the blastocyst stage. Yeah, I think it would have been really interesting to biopsy some of the embryos that didn't make it to blastocyst stage and look to see whether or not those were also aneuploid um, or euploid and how that would factor into it. So how do you think this system differs, this particular artificial intelligence platform differs from some of the others that are out there? Well, I think it's a promising tool because all these systems, all this model, you can have a quick ranking of the embryos. So today to perform biopsy, you have to have graded embryologists in your labs with high skills and with the AI models, with only a computer, you can have this classification of the embryos and choose in a quick uh, moment which is the best embryos. So what of the feature selection you had in your model, what was actually most predictive of aneuploidy? Time of pronucleus fading and time to glycillation. So the earlier the, these times, the more euploid these angles. And so did you find a difference between blastocysts that became blastocysts on day five versus day six in terms of aneuploidy rates? No, no, we didn't assess. I guess what I'm asking was, was your model predicting more than just morphology? Like what was the model adding that could tell, that I could use to say an embryo is euploid versus aneuploid as opposed to just grading the embryo? Yeah, as this study is just uh, with morphokinetic, we didn't use the morphology to this study in particular. So only time. In the future, we want to add some uh, more Yeah, that was my next question. So you just used morphokinetic and didn't have age or other factors incorporated in with that? Uh, this is the particular model morphokinetic, but we want to add more data. And uh, I think uh, adding more data, we will have a more accuracy for the model. And we want to uh, assess pregnancy too, because this study, we didn't assess pregnancy, only the difference between euploid and that was going to be my next step. Where are you going to, where are you going to go from here? What's the, what are you going to do before you can use this clinically? Yeah, I think we are close to use in, in clinic. Not yet, because we are uh, testing. So I think when we reach an accuracy, a good accuracy for pregnancy, like if we reach 0.70 accuracy for pregnancy, it would be wonderful. So I think in more two years, maybe we can have this uh, model working in practice. So a brief technical question. For those that would like to replicate your work, what were you using to assess morphologic times? We're using what systems, what time lapse? Embryoscope Plus. Okay. Good. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being willing to be interviewed and for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And 
Congratulations on your work. Very Thank you very much. Yeah, excellent work. Hi, I'm Sally Odendahl. I am the founder of a brand called Sensitive Matters. And we create the only fully customizable books to talk to children about their donor conception, so their origin story. Which I think is fascinating. And we've spoken with a lot of different people over the course of the meeting. And admittedly, most of the people that we've had on the podcast have been scientific research. But I have to say, I think this is worth mentioning to our listeners as just a novel way of introducing the birth story to for all parents, um, whether it's parents that are heteronormative and conceived um, using IVF or some of our LGBTQ population and some of our patients who conceived with egg donors or sperm donors. So tell us a little bit about what these books are and how parents have used these books to help tell children their birth stories. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about how they came about because that, that, that starts the story. So I had my son five years ago via egg donation and a gestational surrogate and I couldn't find a book to talk to him about those two combination of things and so I wrote the story and then immediately realized that the problem is that there's lots and lots of books out there but they're a story they're not they weren't my story and I realized that other people have the same issue so I sat down and I wrote as many variations on the story that I could possibly think of. I thought, I thought of what would it be if it were two mums? What would it be if it were two dads? What, what's the scenario and how does that change the story? So our books have about, there's about 36 versions, base versions of the story. So 36 different ways that you can tell a story yes. of birth creation. Yes, because there's, there's loads for mum, mum and dad, and then there's a whole lot for mum and mum, and there's loads for dad, and well, there's fewer for dad and dad, but of course there's, so, so there's a combination of every possible way that we could think of. And basically people would go in, pick the story that is most like theirs, and then they can they can edit the words. They can change. They can make it really their own story. They can make sure that they use you know what they want to be called. If you want to be mama rather than mom or mom, right, like or dad and dada or dad, dad and, and daddy, papa or papa. whatever. Right. And so you you create the story for your child. Yes, exactly. From the combination of how that child was created, and then you are able to customize this children's story with the language that is most appropriate for your family. Yes, and because all the text is editable, actually, if you wanted to write it in Spanish or French or Italian, you could do that. So, you know, as long as you understood the English or, or just if you wanted to just make up your own story, you could do that. And we have two versions of the book. We have a photo version, which is very quick and easy to, to make and is fully editable. So the illustrations, the clip arts can be moved. They can be deleted, they can be copied and pasted elsewhere. Um, you can add in new photos, you just drag and drop photos in. Or we have an avatar version where you, we create an avatar of your head, we cartoonize it, we put it on top of some illustrations in the book, and then you have sort of your cartoonized people in your story. <laughs> That's, and, and, and actually, my son has that and he really he really loves it because he can you, he recognizes he can recognize the people in the story yeah so again for our listeners just tell us again what the storybook is called so it's called the magic of you and the website is sensitivematters.net excellent and again i have zero financial disclosures i just thought it was really cool as i was wandering the exhibit hall at ashra and wanted to share this with our listenership so thank you brilliant thank you eve I am now here with Peter He, and I'm going to have Peter go ahead and say your introduction and tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from. I'm Peter, and I'm a PhD student at UCL. Uh, my work is in collaboration with Apricity, which is a fertility clinic in London, but I'm technically in the computer science department. So tell us a little bit. Your abstract that you're presenting is about 3D embryo construction. or 3D, What are you learning from 3D embryo development? Uh, so essentially, my work is based upon the thesis that cell arrangement in 3D space is of, of interest. Um, and that's for a couple of reasons. And like, there's plenty of research that shows that even from the four cell stage, the arrangement of cells in three-dimensional space 
impacts like blastulation and other outcomes. Can you be a little more specific? I know that the pressure of having monolayer culture yeah. is detrimental, but what kind of things mm -hmm. are not working well yeah. in that? not particularly sure actually essentially what happens is just some embryos turn out to be tetrahedral shaped at the full cell stage and they lead to they typically blastulate more often than things that are for embryos for that are for example in a planar formation so that is when the cells are like in a clover sort of formation essentially so is it is it just morphologic differences or are there actually abnormal differences in the development of an embryo at the moment, I think it's just morphological, and like the, the thing is that we don't really have anything beyond the spore cell stage. It's just like associations where we see, hey, there's this morphology. We're not too sure why it leads to poorer blastulation rates. I mean, there are hypotheses, one of them being that uh, more cell contact in tetrahedral formations leads to uh, essentially better, um, like more communication going on between the cells. So how are you building a 3D model? Okay, so uh, this is the thing that I actually know how to do. So effectively what's going on is that we take a regular Hoffman-like Hoffman modulation contrast stack that you can get from any incubator. And effectively what we're doing is we're detecting the cells, figuring out what depths they are, and then reconstructing the embryo in 3D. So typically if you're looking down a microscope and like moving up and down the focal planes, it's it's not impossible, but it is tricky once you get beyond the four cell stage to ascertain where each individual cell is and build like a 3D representation in your head. Um, and effectively what I'm doing is I'm getting a computer to do that and then essentially visualizing that as like a 3D model like floating in space. And so do you think from those 3D models that you're looking at, at the four cell stage, you're pretty accurately able to predict blastocyst development? Uh, not accurately predict because at the moment uh, like like the associations are there but um, I haven't actually looked at that uh, it's more at this stage to just get an understanding as to like how cells are arranged because there are plenty of studies that look at the 3d arrangement of cells in like confocal culture like with confocal microscopes or like with immunofluorescent staining but obviously that isn't particularly feasible in a clinical setting and therefore like Essentially, with, with a lot of like the academic centers, you have relatively small sample sizes of donated embryos. So I suspect you're being modest. So tell us what you think is the most novel finding of your work. Effectively, that we can do uh, this sort of research of 3D reconstruction of embryos without using stains and without like confocal microscopy. So at least my hope is that we can unlock a lot of information from clinical embryos which essentially means you don't need academic centers won't really need to rely on donated embryos to do these studies on like cell neighborhood cell contact adhesion and stuff like that anything that surprised you in your work so far uh yes actually um how how shockingly unstandardized different uh clinics data sets are effectively uh they're all using the same incubator embryo scope incubators just by coincidence and essentially even if everyone's using the same exact same model while well, some some of them will have slightly miscalibrated stuff and that really messes with modern like machine learning techniques ability to distinguish things that's a really intriguing thing that you said is that yeah. we're accumulating a ton of data on embryo mm -hmm. morphology with these these systems and you're saying it perhaps might not be the most generalizable data yeah I mean without a lot of work, essentially. So, I mean, you could just ask people to, uh, everyone to like calibrate their embryoscopes to the exact like configuration that you need. But I think that that would annoy more people than it would like, and, and like make research slightly more difficult. The approach that we take in this work is to essentially just build a AI model that standardizes the data for us. So it's essentially like if there's missing focal planes, because some people just discard the edge planes for whatever reason, what we'll do is we'll just generate it based upon a best guess of how a microscope works. It's fascinating because there's so many, so many people out there that are working so hard on these AI configurations, specifically with an embryoscope to figure out morphokinetics and morphokinetic prediction. And so how would you say that your work interfaces with that? Uh, I think that at least the part on standardization in my work 
interfaces quite neat, nicely with um, a lot of the work that's been going on already. So if you look at like most of the published work, it seems that it, you're either going to be a one of the manufacturers of an incubator and essentially working with a multi-center study, or you're going to be like my group, which is essentially just having collaborations with a lot of different centers and receiving data without potentially having the engineers or whatever to standardize the data. And that makes things difficult because when you have different centers, in, in our context at least, I'm not 100% sure because the data reporting or like the data set reporting in these papers isn't extremely extensive. Uh, what you end up with is like huge variations between just the, the different like, the, di the distance between your focal planes or, or even just like how the embryos aligned in the focal planes. And I think that's like, at least on the standardization side, we're able to fix those things and essentially that allows people who I guess aren't manufacturers to do multi-center studies without blowing up their AIs. This sounds like really great work. What do you hope that you can present to us next year? Where is this going to go? Well, I'm hoping to do the first 3D time lapses without uh, Confocal. So, so essentially introducing like the idea of a 3D time lapse and looking at how cells not just move around, but perhaps given the more scientifically grounded way than just pixels in, prediction out. So perhaps we can like look at cell centers, how they move around, cell neighborhoods, because that's something that's been looked at in like basic science research for decades. Uh, it's just that we can't really evaluate that in clinical embryos because, yeah, but we can't, we can't just go around injecting fluorescence genes or fluorescence right. proteins. And then what about embryo modeling in humans versus the mouse? Is that, are, are you finding similar across species? So I haven't actually worked on mouse embryos. All of the stuff that I've been doing is on human embryos. Uh, but, I mean, you, you guys probably know more about this than I do. Well, it, it's important to work <laughs> yeah. in, in human embryos because you, know, you can only extrapolate animal yeah. models so far. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's fascinating. I feel like in the majority of situations, people work on mouse first and then we try to extrapolate it to humans. And then I guess my other question, just coming from a US-centric perspective, is we have a lot of restrictions on embryo research. Do you have those same restrictions in London? Or are you able to work more freely on embryos? I, I believe that we do have pretty similar restrictions. Um, I mean, we've got like the 14, you aren't allowed to do 14-day culture or whatever, but essentially the work that I'm doing is all retrospective. So um, it really just boils down to consent for non-contact research and um, a, a load of large amount of paperwork. So. <laughs> Sounds yeah. pretty similar. So congratulations, this is great work. Thank you for talking to us. And I hope we'll have you back next year and find out what the next step is. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, with me now I have Richard Anderson, who uh, we have found wandering around the halls at the Escher meeting. <laughs> Why don't you introduce yourself more formally and tell us what you've learned here and what work you're presenting. Okay, thanks, Kurt. So, yeah, I'm Richard Anderson, so I'm Professor of Clinical Reproductive Science at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm presenting some work this afternoon that continues our exploration of the whole big field of women having children after a cancer diagnosis. That's great. I know you published on it before, but how are you expanding it at this research today? So, today's talk is really focused on women who've had breast cancer, and you know, a, a really remarkably small number of women have a, a pregnancy, a successful pregnancy after a breast cancer diagnosis. It's only about, you know, even in the under 40 population, it's only about 6 or 7% of women actually go on and have a baby. Um, which is tragic because in our analysis, something like 40% of women have not had a baby before the diagnosis. So this is a huge number of women missing out on having a family or even for those who've, who've started their family, perhaps not going on to complete it as they would originally have wished. So there's gotta be two competing issues there, right? There's some people that a breast cancer diagnosis is devastating and don't want children. But are you talking about 6% of people who want a child that are able to? We haven't defined how many want to. We're just really highlighting the very small number who, who actually do go on to have a child when they're diagnosed at these very young ages. And by comparison to the general population, that is a huge number of women who did not have the children that they might have, who might have been expected to do so. And are these 
undergoing a fertility evaluation and assistance, or is this really just uh, an unassisted pregnancy? So what we've looked at in this analysis is actually what is the impact of going on to have a baby after breast cancer in that small proportion on their survival because that's obviously, you know, it's a hormone-dependent cancer. There's been a concern, uh, there remains a concern as to whether it's a safe thing to do. And of course, it also interacts with the, the need for many women. They're prescribed um, endocrine treatments these days, particularly for the, you know, the more um, ER-positive tumors, and increasingly for five years or even 10 years now. And the question is, can you take a break? Is it safe to have a baby after this diagnosis? And is there a bottom line to this? So, look? yeah, essentially what we found is actually those women who go on and have a, a baby after breast cancer, their long-term survival is better than those who do not. And we've broken that down by tumor stage, by ER status, by whether you've had a baby before or not, by age, and, and uh, all these factors. And in no subgroup have we found any detrimental effect of going on to have a baby afterwards. In many it's similar, but actually in some subgroups it's actually a, a significantly better survival on those who had a baby. That intrigues me. Well, I want to press you a little bit. So you're not just saying it's safe, you're saying it actually might be, in a sense, beneficial. Well, I think that's maybe a step too far because, of course, this is observational data. This is not, you know, there's, clearly you can't randomize this type of study. So we, but this is real-world outcomes in uh, a whole Scottish population of 40 years of breast cancer diagnosis. So, you know, it's, there's no ascertainment bias and there's no outcome bias because these are, you know, robust national databases. So, no, I would not suggest that women should deliberately go and have a baby to improve their survival, but it does seem to suggest that it is really is a safe thing to do if you're in a position to do so. I know there's some literature, perhaps not the best literature in the world, about rejuvenation with pregnancy, which, is what, which was intriguing me, that uh, pregnancy yeah. is more than just hormones. Well, yeah, I mean, it does make you wonder whether there is, you know, perhaps even a psychological benefit. You know, there's such a change in, in life with, with having going on and having a baby, and it, maybe some of it is the pregnancy itself, maybe other bits of it are, you know, you've got a child, and actually your body is going to be responding differently to to that different life situation you find yourself in. So there's maybe a whole lot of things that we don't really understand is going on. Yeah, no, you've, got, you've got a new life now. You've got new yeah, priorities. Yeah, you, you, you know, your, your body is, your, your life is focused around different priorities to what you had before. So I have and to that ask maybe them. changes more than we think it did. So what about the children? Well, that's a, that's a story that we haven't addressed yet. So uh, we're, we're actually in another analysis we've got underway at the moment looking at uh, pregnancies and cancer survivors, but we're also looking at some of the psychological outcomes, the mental health outcomes, but we haven't really in, in, in ourselves uh, been addressing the health of the children thereafter. Um, that's the next step. We'll be talking to you in Copenhagen then about this Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for stopping by. This was no, a lot of fun. It's a pleasure, Kurt. Nice to talk to you. I'm Nathalie Massin, I'm a reproductive endocrinologist. I work in France, in Créteil, and we perform a randomized controlled trial comparing the dual stimulation, dual stim, so follicular stimulation uh, followed by luteal stimulation, both with, uh, we use HNG, 300 units, and we compare this cycle, dual stim, with two conventional antagonist cycles, also with 300 units of uh, HMG. This was, this was a randomized controlled trial, but we tried to um, have the routine design for us. So patients in the conventional arm could have fresh and frozen embryo transfer before the consecutive uh, cycle, but obviously patients in the duo team group cannot have the fresh transfer, so they have frozen and then a fresh uh, transfer in the um, frozen embryo transfer, the consecutive cycle. I will say duosim has been a really hot topic of ESHRA. In fact, yesterday I went to an entire oral presentation session that focused on duostim, um, including yours, which was fantastic. And what I was really struck by at the session was the various types of duostim protocols that that individual sensors used. So before getting into the nitty gritty of what the trial looked at with the two arms, can you describe in your duo stim protocol how you ran that protocol, when you started stimulation, um, when you triggered, what you triggered with, and then subsequently when you started that second stimulation cycle? So we started the stimulation even in the conventional arm or in the duo stim arm at the beginning of the cycle, cycle two, day two or day three with HMG. 
and then we perform a flexible antagonist protocol. So we introduced the antagonist when the leading follicle was at least 14 millimeters or a stradiol about 500 picogram per milliliter uh, until the triggering and we trigger with uh, HEG because we want to perform a fresh transfer in the conventional group and we want to avoid bias with trigger, different trigger uh, with agonist trigger or HEG trigger these are not so clear data for now so we wanted to have the same trigger uh, between groups so we use uh, HEG and so then in the fresh arm of your trial you triggered with HEG you then went on to do either a fresh or frozen embryo transfer and then in the duo stim you also triggered with HCG and then how many days after so I'm assuming 36 ish hours after HCG trigger you did your egg retrieval and then how many days after that did you begin stimulating again yes just the day after the pickup and then so what you did in the study was you compared the conventional arm to the duo stim arm and you looked at what did you look at we look at the cumulative number of oocytes uh, for the, uh, the both cycle because our hypothesis was that in the luteal phase after a first stimulation maybe we can get more oocytes than in a normal conventional cycle so we could have uh, more oocytes in a shorter time but obviously it was not the case in our study because and so you guys you selected a population of poor responders yes, yes. very poor responders uh, from uh, Bologna criteria because they had equal or less than five uh, antral follicle counts or, and or IMH uh, less than uh, 1.2 nanogram per milliliter. In the um, basal characteristic, the women had uh, IMH as uh, 0.5 by mean, so they were very bad yeah. responder <laughs> patients. But they were relatively young because they were uh, 35 years old by mean in both groups. And so I think that the thought process is really that duo stim improves the outcome. So tell me a little bit about what you saw in the results of your study. So the cumulative number of oocytes was uh, five in both groups, not different by statistical difference. There were no statistical difference. And also there were without no difference regarding the implantation rate. But the birth rate seems a little bit different, but not statistically, because we had the same number, the same total number of embryos, but we have less embryos to transfer in the duo team. Maybe because um, we performed uh, oocyte cryopreservation after the first uh, oocyte pickup, and in the duo team group. And at the second oocyte pickup, use a fresh and cryopreous oocyte to perform an oocyte injection, and then we froze embryo. So we have the frost process and uh, the frozen process and the fourth. Uh, uh, Got process. it. So just to clarify, so in the duo stem, when you did that first egg retrieval, you didn't fertilize at that time. You froze those as oocytes, and then when you did the second egg retrieval then you inseminated all of the oocytes collectively. So do you think that that might have contributed to why duostim was not superior? No, because this, was, this has no influence on the total cumulated number of oocytes. But this may have an influence on the pregnancy uh, rate and uh, birth rates, but not on the cumulative number of oocytes. And our um, study is not uh, powered enough uh, for uh, pregnancy and birth. It was uh, powered for only a cumulative number of oocytes. So for a cumulative number of oocytes, there was no difference. So basically, uh, Duosteam gave the, the same results as uh, uh, two conventional uh, stimulating shake cycle. The only difference is uh, that you can perform a fresh transfer after a conventional uh, cycle and then some women will have uh, their baby and doesn't have to perform a second cycle. But this is not the case in Duosteam. Right, so I think that that's the, that's the biggest question that I have is are we helping women by doing Duostim or are we potentially exposing them to doing additional stimulation cycles that they may not need to undergo? I'm not sure, because when you perform your steam, well, you will uh, gain two weeks, 
to the uh, next uh, pickup and you avoid the possibility to have a fresh transfer. It depends on what are the results after the first pickup, maybe, and the population. If you made uh, urgent fertility preservation, a steam is a very good option, of course, because you can get more site in a short, shorter time. But when you get, can get a pregnancy right now, you don't have to perform another oocyte pickup. So maybe there's a problem with the cost here. <coughs> Usually, uh, people um, arguing for uh, steam say that uh, it's better to accumulate embryos for PGTA, for example. But I don't know uh, what is the, the best. Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, I saw and obviously I should have invited some of those abstract authors as well, but I, I wasn't overwhelmed that the duo stim showed markedly better outcomes as opposed to two cycles back to back. So thank you so much for being willing to come talk with us for doing this work. I think the work that you're doing is terrific and it's been a pleasure getting to meet you. Thank you very much. <laughs>